Thank you for listening to this episode of MESPA Principal Cast from the Minnesota Elementary School Principals Association. Welcome everybody to the MESPA Principal Cast here uh, for our MESPA principals, but also for all educators here in Minnesota. We are on episode three, and I'm really excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Clay Cook, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota um, in educational psychology. Dr. Cook, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Brett. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, before we uh, go too far, I just want to start with something that has been a personal question, and I never asked you about it. So I'm going to let all of our audience hear this right away is tell us about growing up on an almond farm. <laughs> you know, it, it, you would think it's fun, but it ain't that much fun because you end up having to do work. So my brother <laughs> and I had to do a lot of work, irrigating the almonds, pruning trees, getting things ready for crop. And then ultimately, you know, given that almonds grow on a tree, they get, uh, a machine shakes them off the tree, but there's a lot of almonds that stay on those trees. So you have yeah. to go painstakingly with a bamboo pole and knock off all the lingering almonds. And my brother and I used to just dread that. <laughs> so, so wait a minute. So everyone loves to drink their almond milk or to uh, have their almond butter. And you're saying they're, we're getting the fruits of your labor. <laughs> yeah, sure. On our little <laughs> 25 acre almond farm in Northern California, maybe you got one of our almonds. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's it's one of the unique uh, pieces of who you are and how you are here in Minnesota. And so we're going to talk a little bit about kind of your journey here. And so why don't we start? So you you came from California, but you've been via Washington and now here in Minnesota. Tell us a little bit about how you got into educational psychology and especially now where you are talking about trauma, talking trauma informed schools, talking about how we really bring children's mental health into education. How, how did your journey lead you to this? You know, uh, you know, as a researcher, so I'm a researcher now, and we call it me-search. So there's things that actually gravitate, uh, we gravitate towards. And, you know, what captivated my attention was based on my own kind of life experiences. My dad was a high school dropout. He did with, dealt with tons of adversity growing up. We didn't have much uh, when we initially were growing up. And so, long story short, made some poor decisions myself, uh, came in contact with the legal system in middle school, had a stint in alternative education. In high school, sports kind of kept me in, involved. Uh, you know, fast forward to my senior year in college, I was flunking out, threatened to be kicked out of the university, still continuing to make poor choices. And then finally, I came in contact with a developmental psychology professor who really took an interest in me and got me involved in some research. And it was educationally related research, and that's what ignited a passion. I started out as a paraprofessional, was a middle school math teacher for a brief stint, um, I really wanted to support students in other ways that versus teaching, and that's what got my interest in school psychology. And so after I got my doctorate, I worked in San Bernardino, California, took off from there and worked at Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a residential treatment facility. Yeah. Got my first academic job at LSU, decided to move to Washington because my wife was not willing to move to Louisiana and I was there <laughs> at the University of Washington. And then my wife is from Minnesota 
So we were wanting to move closer to her side of the family, so I ended up at the University of Minnesota, where I'm quite happy to be in Min- claim Minnesota as my home now. Well, uh, and we're quite happy to have you. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, well, that's a journey. So so you were down. Uh, that's a that's a heck of a journey here. So uh, you've got to see a lot of different systems then to kind of help help guide your research and and kind of see different perspectives, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I was a third year in my uh, doctoral training, and I met a woman, her name's Diana Browning-Wright, she's a professional educational consultant, and I kind of challenged her on stuff because she was talking about things that didn't align well with the evidence base, and then all of a sudden she said, okay, you're now the research director of a statewide initiative in California, and you're going to accompany me on training educators across systems in the state of California. And so I immediately got thrust into kind of systems change work, uh, school consultation work, working with systems on the integration of evidence-based practices. And so now, you know, I'm past a decade doing work across multiple school systems across the United States to help support the integration of multi-tiered systems of support in the area of social, emotional, and behavioral functioning. Well, and it's it, and and you've got the science behind the way that you speak with others, and I can I can tell everyone that's listening here is that uh, um, Dr. Cook, you, your way of explaining how the research supports what seems to be good common sense, but we just don't always want to believe it. It, you make it very approachable for people to sit down and read an article. And I, I, as somebody who likes to read, I have read several of your studies. And the, and the most recent one, not the one on EBD, actually, was your second step work. And uh, just because I'm, I'm always curious about how we um, go into looking at curriculum or for like our district is talking about how we implement good SEL practices. And uh, it's you, you kind of covered a lot of different areas. Can you talk about what your favorite area of research has been so far? Yeah, I think my right now I just have a deep passion for implementation and really contributing to the science of implementation, but more so not just the science, but how do we actually translate what we know to best support the adults in the buildings to put in place effective practices so students can consistently receive those practices, which is kind of the mechanism by which we drive outcomes. So I'm most passionate now because we know a lot about what works. We struggle to get those practices up and running in everyday school environments. And if we don't implement them, students don't receive them. And so many students fail to access what they need. And so I I really do look at uh, the implementation work as, you know, critical to supporting educators in everyday school environments to consistently deliver the supports and experiences students really need. You know, so as as the keynote speaker at MESPA last year, one of the things that you talked about was tier one and tier two, and you used the analogy of of a pig in mud with tier one and tier two. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about that saying and what you were meaning by that? Yeah, you know, I conceptualize it, and maybe it's a rotten metaphor, but to me it just... I loved it, so... It it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you can imagine like tier one being a pond, so you have this pond, and it, 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 it could be a clean one, a dirty one, and we can talk about what that means. But just imagine it's a dirty one, and you know you have a kid is swimming in the pond. We take the kid out of the pond. 
and they're dirty. So we, we want to intervene to get them clean. So we, we hose them off. But unfortunately, you know, the, the student may have to, you know, go back in or the child goes back into the pond. And this kind of helps communicate the, the reason why tier one, building that solid foundation is so critical because it enables our interventions to work. And if we expect certain types of interventions to overcome fractures and our, our base supports, our tier one supports, it, it you know, that's an incorrect assumption because those fractures will actually weaken the potency of inter any intervention we implement on top of it. So it helps really think through the importance of having that solid tier one and that we build and implement tier two interventions on top of that solid foundation. So to the extent we make investments to build a robust tier one, it's also an investment to enable our interventions for kids who have higher levels of needs to work. And, and for everyone listening, like that, the tier one that we're talking about is it, it, it really is the intervention that all kids get access to. And so that's why you're saying how important it is. And and I can tell you in some of the conversations with with some principals after after listening to you and just having more dialogue around it is is in many of our systems, if we don't know what to do with a child and they're really struggling, whether it be academically or behaviorally, we might give an intervention that isn't always effective. And if we, that doesn't work, we go, well, it looks like we might need to look at a special education referral. And your work is, is the place where we're trying to give more resources to the teachers to say, teachers, principals, systems, I, should, I wanna make sure I clarify that, that there are other, other ways that we can really be reaching out to our kids and giving them um, proven um, interventions that are gonna have some success, or if they don't, then you can talk about what happens next. Is that, is that a fair representation? Yeah, totally. I mean, we could first got to make sure all kids are accessing the basic things they need. Kids need to make sure that they they have a sense of belonging and connection to their environments. They need to be educated in predictable, orderly, and positive environments. And that's something we hope that all kids, when they you know cross the threshold of schools, they're experiencing it. And it just so happens if we put those in place, we can prevent a lot of problems. But even if kids uh, continue to struggle despite having that in place. It also provides that solid foundation for our interventions to work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So now let's, let's, uh, I'm going to switch topics. We're going to be coming back to this because I want to talk about children's mental health, but now you are a father of two kids. Is that correct? Yep. Two girls, six and All right. three, six and three. So now tell me what has parenthood done to to influence your practices or the, the drive of your research? Because you, you bring it up in, in your presentations and you talk to people about, you know, not always being your best self when it comes to being a parent or being a teacher, and yet we're all just trying to do our best. Talk a little bit about how you brought your family experiences into delivering some of the messages you do. Yeah, man, first it's humbling. I mean, anytime, if anybody's ever uh, taught before, you could say it's a humbling experience. Same thing with becoming a parent. When you're on the outside looking in, it's easy to judge and think, what the heck's wrong? Why are you getting upset? Can't you stay calm? Why aren't you always organized and structured? Why aren't you sticking to your plan? But then you have the kind of Im immersed reality of certain situations, such as parenting or teaching, and you realize that we're all in it together. We're mm -hmm. all trying to manage and regulate ourselves as the adults in charge of kids' lives, do things as skillfully as possible, 
but also recognize we have tons of areas for growth and improvement. And we have plenty of things to reflect on when we recognize we could have handled uh, things differently. And so I'd like to bring in stories about, you know, my own parenting and my experiences with my two girls because I'm always humbled and sometimes embarrassed if others may have been looking because <laughs> I didn't necessarily handle situations better. But, you know, one thing I can do is I can I love the heck of out, out of them and I can commit to trying to get better over time. And I look <laughs> at teaching in a, in a similar way or being any type of educator, whether you're a counselor, school psychologist, behavior specialist or, you know, an administrator that, you know, we're all fallible people. We can make mistakes, but we right. also through reflective processes can incrementally improve over time. And, and, you know, uh, Clay, I, I'm going to just add another piece and not to like go, go Brene Brown on you or anything, but being vulnerable is uh, um, you admit, because sometimes I think um, when we have, when in a typical education um, setting and we're having a professional development session and you have a speaker who's coming and talking with your, with your staff or to your staff, depending on the presentation, um, is to have somebody who says something that is humble, shows the vulnerability and says, I understand we're all going to have our struggles. So, and this work is going to be messy. It's not perfect. If it was, we would all just open the box and do it. And um, bringing that to, to teachers and to staff and to all the people that work with our kids, it's, it's such a key component in the way that you deliver. And as somebody who sat at the table with, with 12 other teachers and listened to them go, oh my gosh, to have somebody who's sharing, sharing good practices, but also admitting that they're human and they don't always do it <laughs> perfectly is, uh, is definitely makes it very approachable. So um, I just want to share that piece with you because uh, I've, I've heard the feedback around that. Um, you know, one of the quotes I read from you um, is that you, you've said school is the best place to address children's mental health needs. Can you tell us as principals why you feel that that is, uh, is one of the best places we can address it and a little bit about what that means? You know, there's Kimberly Hogwood's a professor now at uh, New York University. She was at Columbia and she started doing initial research that was pretty enlightening, showing that most kids who have a mental health need never access care. Um, we can build community mental health clinics and we can expect families to hop in their cars and show up and regularly get that, but the vast majority of kids never go access care even though they need it. And even if they do show up, the average kind of session attendance is three to four sessions. Mm. And by default, what she was finding that schools are taking on this work because that's where kids exist. Right, so right. it really started to say, okay, we got the, the model, and I call it the fill the dreams approach, is, is flawed, where you build the community uh, clinic and you, you build it and they will come. Well, it doesn't turn out that's the case. So many kids fail to access what they need. Versus if you set up mental health services, we co-locate mental, community mental health providers in schools. We train personnel who are on our payrolls to deliver high-quality mental health services, and all of a sudden we start addressing what's called the access gap. And that access gap, in my view, is the most pernicious thing that influences the healthy development of our children, because if kids have needs and they can't access what they need, they're gonna have a problem. If a kid is struggling in elementary school and hits third grade and really can't read well, 
that and they're not unable to access that remedial support, they're going to struggle through the rest of their schooling experiences unless that needs addressed. And so in the area of mental health, it's it's called school-based mental health. And really what that means is to integrate those services kind of into the fabric of schools. Uh, so kids, more kids who have a need can access them in an early, timely way versus kind of a reactive way in which, you know, needs become bigger and potentially turn into crisis. And and you're totally right about that is the place. I mean, where, where they are, the kids are in our schools, and that's where you're going to get them coming most time. So, so Clay, I, I, you know, having kids in our schools, that, that is the place, whether it's co-located services, whether it's getting the right personnel trained in, I, I can see how um, that is a, a place. So now on the, let's just talk on the legislative side or on the funding side is, are, how do we get the message out that these additional mental health services, however we um, do it, how do we convince our legislators and the people who you know help make some of those financial decisions? Have you have you had any work done in that and, and how we bring about changing that in our public schools? Yeah, I mean, you know, influencing policy decisions is, you know, a whole area of scientific inquiry where we're trying to figure out how do we best um, provide policymakers with the information that they need to make informed decisions regarding uh, you know, meeting kids' needs and ultimately enabling prevention to happen versus investing in other ways where we're, it's reactive and treatment heavy. Um, and so typically, you know, the, the ways in which we approach this is coming up with really pithy uh, policy briefs that provide data on, you know, the differentials between if you set up mental health services in schools versus elsewhere, what's, what's the access, providing some degree of stories where, you know, kids have gone virtually their entire uh, adolescent life without, you know, accessing a care versus kids who are able to, you know, were struggling and were able to access mental health services and do well. Uh, but, you know, if you think about from the U.S. kind of landscape across uh, states, Minnesota is, is leading the way in school mental health in many respects in terms of investments, but it's still not even close to enough. You know, our state needs to invest in more school-based mental health providers who are available to do this work in partnerships with educational administrators and teaching staff. We also need to invest in more kind of home-based liaisons who are able to provide services in home to help stabilize home environments for kids and making sure parents have their needs met. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, there's been progress made, but there's still a lot more to be made in terms of creating the funding realities to make it happen. Yeah. Well, and it's a, it's a, it's a gap that when you talk about the equity gap, there's, there's a big one right there because, uh, um, I don't think that the, the mental health services are catching up with even just some of the things that, that you can measure, such as reading or math. And you can look at those scores and go, oh, well, we need to address more of this. And so we're going to mandate that everyone does this. Um, the mental health is such a gray area. And if you haven't had experience with it, you don't understand the importance and how much our systems, our school systems need something like this. Um, I will say this, though, from experience. Co-located services, if, if schools are able to access grants or access um, ways to get a, um, uh, uh, any kind of mental health professionals, there are even ones that will continue service after school or over the summer to make sure our students and parents or family caregivers are getting some of that extra help they need too. So um, 
it is out there here in Minnesota, people. So uh, it's just a matter of, of finding it and getting some support around it. So I uh, uh, want to throw that out there. Uh, Clay, you know, we've talked a little bit about I am four, and especially when we're looking at trauma-informed schools, our students who are coming with ACES scores that sometimes you can almost, you can, you meet a child and you start going, I wonder if there's any ACEs going on here. Um, when you just, when you start kind of learning a little bit about who they are, can you talk about um, how educators can use I am four to develop good behavioral interventions for our students who are, who are needing supports? Yeah. Maybe we, tell us a little bit about I am four first. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was something we it's been in 10 years in the making. This has just been one of the, my passions was to really figure out how do we support schools to build, you know, a tier two infrastructure. So kids are able to access high quality supports in a timely and efficient manner. And really, we started to try to connect the dots for people. And so IM4 stands for intervention matching. So the goal is to get the right intervention in place for the kid. Mapping, which is to kind of figure out a plan to make sure we can deliver that intervention with fidelity or else the kid won't receive it. we got to monitor the kid's response as well as the fidelity of delivery. So when we meet, we can actually uh, make a data-driven decision. So really, we look at it as a a problem-solving system that really connects the dots for inter tier two intervention programming from beginning to end. The matching part is really trying to get it right at the beginning to really look at the root cause that's driving the kid's social, emotional, and behavioral need. Once we can kind of figure out the root cause, then we can attach that root cause to a particular intervention, such as a trauma-informed intervention where the kid really could benefit from learning strategies to better regulate their emotions mm -hmm. in the context of uh, emotion-provoking situations. And there's evidence-based interventions out there at the elementary level. Bounce Back is a small group. Cognitive behavioral skills focus group. At the secondary level, we have cognitive behavior intervention for trauma in schools called CBITS. So IM4 really helps you figure out which kids in the school would benefit from which interventions. And so they're able to more precisely kind of assign and select interventions based on the root cause that's driving the kid's need. And, and for everyone that's listening, if you have a uh, student assistance team or a, a team that's trying to figure out how to help a student and you're looking at behaviors, IM4 is a really inexpensive way for you to spend short amounts of time figuring out what is the primary need of this student that we're trying to help them manage. And so that way you don't get into the weeds of we're trying, we're trying to fix this, we're trying to fix that. It's what is it that the student needs most to be successful now and in the near future? And you can start addressing it one step at a time. Is, is that a good way to kind of sum it up? I mean, that, that's through my experience, but Clay, is yeah, that the it's, intent it, of it? That is definitely what it's intended to do is help people make decisions around trying to get the proper intervention in place. And once you've selected that intervention, it also creates kind of the structure to follow through with delivering that intervention well and having data at your fingertips so you can make the next decision in your pursuit of supporting the kids well-being and success in school. And you know, at the University of Minnesota, they're trying to take, as a researcher, I've been studying that, and then they have essentially a technology group who says, you know what, 
that all, there's a lot of working pieces, and given that there's a lot of working pieces, technology is kind of your answer to put it in one place and have a process that people can follow kind of step by step so it minimizes potential error or, and it minimizes burden on providers. Because, I mean, educators are busy. There's lots yeah. of time, and the last thing they need is a clunky, burdensome type of system that they have to try to follow. Ultimately, those types of systems don't get implemented and they get kind of abandoned. So it's not right. saying IM4 is a perfect solution, but that's in the spirit of what we're trying to create. And we're, tr we're hopeful that it, it, it provides a resource and a tool that helps people get better at intervening with kids who need interventions. And, and it comes with, like with learning anything, is that you have to spend some time in it practicing on students that aren't necessarily in your crisis situation. And so <laughs> yeah. if you're sitting down with your SAT teams or your PST teams or whatever you call them in your schools is spend a little time and just talk about a kid from the previous year and, and go through with the teacher who's willing just to talk with you through it and, and help identify what is the primary thing that we're looking at. And because if you come to a, uh, a meeting with your team and all you're doing is admiring the problem and you never actually get to anything that will help the teacher, they're going to feel frustrated with how we do our interventions or what we're even doing when we're talking about a kid who they, they need help with. And so I am for is just one of those tools you can use, but it sure, it sure gives you the welcome mat and it gives you a little bit of a guide of where to go next. And so um, I, I, I just want to kind of be a proponent here of saying, when we're, as educators, we're always lacking the tool. We're not always lacking the tools, but we need quality tools that can help us be better at how we serve our kids. And so that's one of them. So I, I, had, to, I had to put that plug in, Clay, because it's something that we're, we're learning about and we're, and we're raising our implementation just by having that for, for some of our students, whether it be attention needs, um, whether it be some, some of its emotional regulation. Um, but we're seeing more and more students that, that are, are needing the support. So it's a, it's a good tool. Yeah, we're just interested, I mean, from a research standpoint, I'm only interested in doing research on things that will, can actually live in everyday school environments. And so, you know, we try to get feedback. If it's not working, then we got to come up with a different solution because educators really need kind of the tools and supports that enable them to get to the work that they do best. And that's interfacing with kids and creating ex enriched experiences that allow them to grow and develop and be successful students. And so our goal is to try to, and it's not always, you're not always successful, but to try to create tools that are usable, feasible, make sense, and ultimately give people a degree of confidence when it comes to meeting kids' needs. Yeah, it's, you know, so now I'm going to, I'm going to flip the script a little bit on this and, and move from kids to, to the teachers is uh, one of my colleagues, Karen Kepler, um, uh, who's an elementary principal. She, she led a session quite a few years ago that I went to it that was titled, you got to feed the teachers so they don't eat the kids. And, uh, yeah. and it's something that's always kind of stuck with me. I'm like, oh yeah, like I, I, I understand what the title is and, and, and you've talked a lot about, it's not just about helping the kids, but if the teachers aren't feeling that they're getting the support or they're getting the tools or the culture is not a place that, that allows for a lot, of, um, a lot of those things that will help them be better for their kids. Can you talk a little bit about whether it's PBIS, the greetings, but the, some of the things about taking care of adults so it transfers down to the kids? Because you've got a lot, of, a lot of work on that too. Not necessarily research, but a lot of uh, good opinions. 
Yeah, you know, I just think about, you know, what types of experiences for anybody optimize their performance and well-being. So the things we know are true for kids are, you know, by and large, most of the time, extend to the adults. We know if adults are treated in respectful ways where they're able to get along and feel a sense of belonging and connection to those who they work with, um, that those are optimizers for just well-being and performance. And what we want are adults who are performing at their best as mo most of the time they can do that. And so we know also on the, the flip side of that, that when adults are struggling, they're, they're stressed, they're burned out, they're having intentions of maybe leaving their current position, that those things undermine their motivation and performance and ultimately has a trickle-down effect uh, to, uh, you know, the experiences students have. So I look fundamentally at the role of schools is to first make sure we're nurturing and supporting the adults to be in a good place because they, it enables their performance. And so we think about a lot of things. First of all, how do we create healthy relationships where people are striving to create a kind of a collaborative, po positive space where people are working together to co-create the optimal experiences that they know students need for them? How do we, you know, talk about stress and potential burnout? And what are the factors we're putting in place to help dissipate those things so people are feeling, you know, more positively charged and in better positions to take on, you know, the challenges of being an educator. It's mm -hmm. one of the most, if not the most meaningful profession, but things that are meaningful and matter a lot, stress comes, comes along with that. So we have to be willing to talk about and manage and do things that help uh, mitigate the stress that comes along with doing such incredible, meaningful work for our society. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I also say it's high, it's a high stakes game that we're in because the better you become as an educator, the more you realize how crucial and critical the work you do is. <laughs> and uh, and that, that adds a different burden of stress that because the ones, the teachers who are out there doing the really hard work are, um, they're given their all every single day trying to be their best for our kids. And so you're right. You got to, we've got to nurture them. We've got to give them, create the environment that makes them their best. And, uh, um, you know, I, I interviewed Cl uh, Curtis Slater. Um, and I think, you know, Kurt. Oh yeah. Love him. Love <laughs> and, him. uh, and he, he was in our, in our first episode, nationally distinguished principal. And, and, you know, he, he talks about like, don't be, don't apologize for, for bringing the energy, bringing the noise and being your best for your kids and your staff, because they all need to feel that appreciation and that support. And it looks different on a, every different day. And so you, you adjust it to meet the needs of each of those individuals that are in your building. And, uh, um, it's pretty powerful stuff. And, and he references, he referenced you too. And I was just like, oh, I gotta, I gotta tie this together here, but, uh, <laughs> all right. So now speaking of research, what do you think the odds are of our twins winning the world series? Well, uh, <laughs> hey, I grew up in California. I'm in my fourth year living in Minnesota. I've kind of got a feeling of what the, the sports culture here is about. <laughs> you know, when teams head into the playoffs, what most people are saying it, thinking, but may not say it. But <laughs> right. I'm saying this year they're going to pull it off. They're going to, you know, defy the predictions and they're going to hang in there. The pitching staff's great. I think there's a solid lineup and the Twins are going to 
surprise some people when it comes to playoff times. They're first going to get in the playoffs, and then after that, they're going to they're going to you know get some recognition and bring some you know prestige back to Twins baseball. Absolutely, Clay. I went to the Bellagio this summer and I put a $50 bet on the Twins winning it all. And it's sitting on my refrigerator right now to remind me every day that I believed it then I have, and I keep believing it now. So, <laughs> But that's, a, that's something, Clay, that uh, you know we, we talk a lot about research and, and our time is running short here. So I just want to uh, finish that is that you, know, you have a lot of other passions outside of just being a researcher, even though that, that's a thing that drives you professionally. What are the things that you enjoy or what are the things that help bring balance into your life so that uh, you, you can be the professional that you are in research, but when you have time outside of work, spending time with your family, what are some other things that you, you do to fill your bucket? You know, I am a, a work hard, play hard person because uh, some people who have a chance to work with me, man, you're busy all the time. And, uh, it, but it's also, I know how to turn it off and then, you know, flip the switch in terms of investing in family and then doing things that I like. Uh, I still play basketball. I'm an avid uh, fisherman. My brother and I take an annual fly fishing trip. Uh, oh, nice. We're, we're, we're campers. We like to camp, so we've been definitely ramping up our camping game with our daughters and, yeah. you know, getting around. And eventually, I've, kids have kind of cramped my style with doing backpacking, but that's one of the things I, I'm really looking forward to getting back in once they're up the age and kind of getting lost for a week or two and just having what you need on your back and going exploring the mountains. So typically outdoor stuff is the way – that I would rather spend my time if I can, if I have my leisure opportunities. I like beer too. Minnesota's <laughs> a good beer beer state. It, it is. I, I landed ten thousand breweries, right? Oh wait, no, ten thousand lakes. Let me get that right. <laughs> but you know, it's uh, well, you've been here four years and you're planning on sticking around, Clay. I'm going to encourage you to check out the Boundary Waters, man. Every every year, I do at least one trip up there. And I've been going for the last, uh, well, since since basically I was a junior in high school. So now I'm going on 20 plus years of uh, there's no cell service. There is no electricity. Um, and and to go up there in a canoe and you're hiking and you're paddling and you're fishing, it's it checks off a lot of what you're just talking about. It's uh, it's something that uh, if you if you like Minnesota, I, I recommend someday you give that a shot. Um, I, I was exposed to it at a younger age and uh, um just something to check out because uh, we have a beautiful that Boundary Waters is an amazing, beautiful place. Oh, it's not if, it's when. I mean, we're already scoping that out. So we're hoping to take our daughters probably next year and do a small little scale version and then maybe ditch our kids with one uh, with my parents still fly in. And then my wife and I will go for about a week. But that's already on the horizon. It might be a year or two out, but it's we already have it planned. It's just awesome. you got to do it. Yeah, Jim, we've got we've got a national park in our state. I mean, that's that's where you just go. Oh, right. Minnesota does have something to bring and bring for anyone that come around here. But uh, well, everyone, I, I just Clay, I want to say thank you so much um, for, for being on the MESPA principal cast and uh, and for sharing your insights for kids and for the work that you're doing to help support our leaders, our educators, but most of all, uh, it trickles down. So our kids are getting what they need. And, uh, you know, your work is important and we, and we value it. So we want to say thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brett. And, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. It's, 
it's it's incredible to watch good leaders work and I, there's many of those in the state of Minnesota that kind of leave my jaw dropped and kids are in good hands when there's good leaders who are supporting the adults to be their best possible selves so absolutely just keep up it's the good work and thanks for the opportunity right it's all cyclical well everyone thank you so much for listening to the mespa principal cast we'll have another episode downloading in two weeks make sure you subscribe and tell everybody else that you know sign up for the mespa principals cast uh thanks for listening everybody